Hey, my name's Matt Kennedy, and this is the Steadfast Podcast. This podcast exists to use Bible study and theological teaching to encourage you to be steadfast in your faith. Thank you for taking time out of your day to check out the Steadfast Podcast. I hope today's episode is an encouragement to you. In last week's episode, we saw Jesus make a hometown visit to Nazareth. While it may have started off normal enough, it definitely proved to be a not-so-warm welcome. I mean, can you imagine heading to your hometown, and then some stuff going down, some conversations, some disagreements happening, and it ending with them trying to throw you off a cliff? That would be pretty rough. Yet Luke records that right as they were about to throw Jesus off the cliff to kill him, he says this, verse 30, quote, But passing through their midst, he went away, end quote. They had the opportunity to believe in Jesus, to see him as a true Messiah, yet they could not believe and they could not see. Instead of belief, they responded with anger and with attempted violence. Now, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before that the events in the Gospels are not always told chronologically. Sometimes they are told thematically. What's interesting about the remainder of chapter 4, which is what we're going to work through today, is that the events appear to be told both chronologically and thematically. What I really want you to see more than anything in this passage of Scripture is how the authority of Jesus is declared. His authority extends from the spiritual to the physical to even heaven itself. In other words, it is as the great Christian philosopher Abraham Kuyper said, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. End quote. Jesus has authority over all. Nazareth really missed something special. Now, with that, our first section will describe the spiritual authority of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 31. Quote, then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. End quote. Verse 31 starts with the words, Then he went down to Capernaum. Now, that would be what would imply that this event, or what we're about to see, happens chronologically after Nazareth, right? So after all the issues at Nazareth, Jesus returns to Capernaum. Remember, last week our passage started with the synagogue at Nazareth. That was where everything went crazy. Verse 16 had told us that it was his custom to go to the synagogue. Well, that pattern really holds true here. That's exactly where he is again. He is teaching the people at the synagogue of Capernaum, and they are blown away at their teaching. And apparently, maybe I'm reading between lines here, but it appears they have zero thoughts and zero intentions of throwing him off a cliff, which I'm sure he is relieved about. All right, verse 33, quote, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out to the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. End quote. So picture this. While Jesus is up there, he's in the synagogue, he is teaching. And then all of a sudden, this excitement stirs up. This excitement breaks out. A man possessed by a demon cries out as loud as he can. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus is capable of. They know who the Alpha is in this situation. You see, in a lot of movies, like good and evil are presented as almost equal forces. But that's not reality, that's just movies. That's to make things appear more dramatic. In reality, 
There is no question who will have ultimate victory. I think you can see that in the demon's response. Look at verse 34 again. Quote, Go away. What do you want with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. End quote. The demon does not ask if Jesus will try to destroy them. He doesn't ask if he wants to throw down. For the demons, apparently, they understand their fate. In Matthew 8.29, there is recorded another encounter between Jesus and with those who are demon-possessed. Look at what the demon says there. Matthew 8.29, quote, And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? End quote. It sounds pretty similar, right? It sounds almost the same. But did you get that last part? Before the time. We often think of the lake of fire spoken of in Revelation 20 as something for human beings who have not placed their faith in Jesus. And that is true. Anyone who has not placed their faith, their belief, their hearts in Jesus, then that is their ultimate eternal destination. But it is also where Satan, his demons, and even death itself, as crazy as that sounds, will eternally reside in unthinkable torment. You have to understand, this demon apparently understands where he's going. He understands that his days are numbered. He understands that Jesus is greater than he is. He understands that this is not a real fight. He has to do what Jesus says. So, Jesus tells the demon to be quiet and leave. And that's exactly what the demon does. The demon has no choice in the matter because Jesus is Lord over all. He has complete and total authority over all spiritual things. Demons are fallen angels. They were angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Revelation 12 gives us a window into the past that describes that battle. The archangel Michael and the angels loyal to God threw Satan and the fallen angels, the demons, out of heaven. Look, we've got lots of movies about Satan and demons. Uh, the old movie, The Exorcism, uh, the Paranormal Activity movies, and so many others. The idea of a demon, something you can't usually see, can be something very scary. That's why all those movies are in the horror genre of movies. The idea of demonic possession or influence or some sort of attack, all are scary things. With them being as scary as they are, isn't it so interesting that the demons, both in the Luke passage and the Matthew passage, and really it's so many passages, that you can see that they're afraid of Jesus. Those who we may be afraid of are actually afraid of Jesus. That's kind of a crazy thing to think about. And I, I know, speaking of crazy things to think about, that the idea of demonic possession or demonic influence could sound a little bit crazy, right? It could sound a little bit out there. I believe Satan and his demons operate a little more subtly here in the West than maybe in other parts of the world. Here in the West, we're so materialistic. And I mean that in two ways. One, yes, materialistic, we want all the stuff. But two, materialistic as in like, we like material things, we like the physical. Most of our culture doesn't want to think too much about the spiritual. Or if it does want to talk about the spiritual, it wants to keep things in very vague terms. So if you were Satan, and you were looking at this nation of people who really wanted to reject the spiritual, or at least reject specifics within the spiritual, why in the world would would you do things to wake them up? Why in the world would you let a people who believe you're a superstition, why would you let them figure out you're more than that? Why would you let them figure out that you are real, that you are an actual spiritual enemy of theirs that is trying to trip them up, mess them up, make it so they spend eternity with you in the lake of fire? See, here's the thing. I don't think Satan cares if you know he exists or not. 
What he cares is about stealing glory from the Almighty God by taking his image bearers, that's men and women, all of humanity, and leading them right to hell. Leading them into this materialistic, physical mindset where nothing spiritual exists, everything's a superstition, everything is vague or vibes or whatever. He wants you to be in the dark until it's too late. But here's the thing. There is a real spiritual enemy, and Jesus has been kicking his butt for a long time. We can be tempted to see this physical world like our culture does and think that's all that there is. But your life is so much more spiritual than you can imagine. And at the end of the day, I think it is a beautiful thing that no matter what spiritual force is out there, no matter what they want to do, Jesus is greater. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And Jesus has all spiritual authority. Verse 36. Quote, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding area. End quote. The people are understandably amazed at what they had just witnessed. They really can hardly believe their eyes, believe their ears, and believe the authority that Jesus has just demonstrated before them. You see, there was a such thing as a Jewish exorcist way back then. They involved these elaborate rituals and sayings, and really it's debated as to how effective they actually were, but I'm not going to rule it out here. I mean, God will show mercy to whom he shows mercy, right? So who am I to say that God did not show mercy to those people in that way? I don't know. I wasn't there. But what Jesus does here is totally different. There's no ritual. There's no elaborate saying. He just basically tells the demon to be quiet and leave, and that's what the demon does. This is a different kind of authority. Listen, the one who endured the cross for you, who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, has all spiritual authority. He is Lord over the unseen. Now, we will pick back up in verse 38 and see his physical authority. Quote, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. End quote. Now, y'all will remember that the Simon mentioned here is often called Peter in the Bible. So his mother-in-law is really sick, and Jesus just rebukes the fever and it leaves. Some translations, such as the Christian Standard Bible, use the same word rebuke for Jesus speaking to the demon and the fever. The ESV translated him speaking to the demon as said sternly, but it's the same word, same meaning. Jesus essentially scolds the fever and it leaves. Not only does Jesus have the authority to command or rebuke spiritual things or spiritual beings, he also has the authority to command or rebuke anything that is physical as well. Every atom in the universe is subject to his rule and his reign. Listen, it is no wonder that he is the great healer because he has power over every cell in our bodies. When I go visit someone at a hospital, I always pray with them at the end of the visit. My prayer always starts with talking about God's sovereignty, about His power and authority over everything. I praise God for His power. I praise God for His authority. The reason I start every prayer that way is because every cell in your body is under His control. The fact that your heart beats, your lungs inhale and exhale, you sweat to cool yourself, your digestive system does what digestive systems do, and a billion other things that are happening in your body happen because of God's power and authority over the physical things. It happens because of His authority and power in every cell of your body. Colossians 1 talks about how Jesus not only created everything, but it says He 
holds all things together. You have never lived a single second outside of his sovereignty, outside of his power, outside of his authority. Each and every single one of us are alive in this moment because God is keeping us alive. I know people can get a little funny around this word sovereignty, talking about God's control over everything. But for me, when I pray, I know I'm praying to the one who can heal anything, do anything, overcome anything, because every square inch of this universe has to do what he says. Everything is under his control. Listen, sickness has to obey Jesus. Circumstances have to obey Jesus. Hardship has to obey Jesus. The mountain that seems too big to climb, they all have to obey Jesus. How else do you think he can tell his followers that it takes the faith of a mustard seed to move a mountain? It's because the one we have faith in has authority and power to do anything. We do not give Jesus enough credit. Not only does he reign over all spiritual things, he reigns over all physical things. He's the king. He's in control. He's stronger than anything we could ever face. Here's a fun fact for you. Our earth right now, as we are sitting here, spins at about a thousand miles per hour as it orbits the sun at about 67,000 miles per hour. Think about that. Spins 1,000 miles per hour while it's orbiting 67,000 miles per hour. That's a lot of speed. That's a lot of intensity. And right now it doesn't even seem windy, right? (laughs) Pretty miraculous. It does that on the exact path it needs to do that because of the power of Jesus. He's in control of everything. He's got power over everything. And since there is no one greater than he is, no one mightier than he is, no one more powerful, that means he's the center of it all. That means he's not a vending machine for us. He's not a genie in a bottle. Sometimes the answers to the questions we lift up in prayer is a no. But even in the no, even in the disappointment, we know the right thing is being done. I don't know if it's going to work out this way, but if God does one One day in heaven, show us why he answered no to certain prayers. We will thank him and praise him for it, and we will see that he was right. We will have this moment of, Lord, if I could have seen what you see, if I could have known what you know, then I would have prayed for exactly what you did. I know in the moment of grief or moment of hardship, that's not always easy to take that kind of stuff in and believe it. I don't know if we are more likely to question his power or question his heart. So far, we've talked about his spiritual and physical authority, that if he is truly that powerful, then the problem in our circumstances can never be connected to a lack of power on his part, for there is no lack. And he truly endured the cross for you, and he drank the cup of God's wrath for you. If he is truly that good and loving, then the problem in our circumstances can never be connected to a lack of heart on his part, for there is no lack. That leaves us with one option. There's good we cannot see or comprehend. Our call is to trust the nail-scarred hands that lead us, not to understand what he does. Listen, the one who endured the cross for you, who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, has all physical authority. He is the Lord over the scene. Now, let's look at a third authority. Verse 41, quote, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. End quote. So why was Jesus sent? For what purpose? You see, casting out demons, that wasn't the point. 
healing the sick. That wasn't the point. Those were really good things and changed the lives of people, but they were ultimately not the point of his ministry. What they were is that they were signs that pointed to the preaching, the proclaiming that says, hey, this is legit. This is real. Look at the power behind this. I know we want to see cool stuff like exorcisms or miraculous healings. That seems so exciting. They were definitely good things that Jesus brought with him, but the greater gift Jesus brought was the gospel. The greater gift was access to God himself. When you see the words good news, remember it's the same word as gospel, evangelion. Paul said in Romans 1.16, quote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, end quote. It is through founding this powerful message that we see Jesus show his heavenly authority. Remember, we've got spiritual authority, physical authority, now heavenly authority. The gospel itself is the key to the kingdom. So as Jesus traveled to preach the gospel, he was exercising the authority for all who would believe to be brought into the kingdom of God. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The good news is that the Savior has arrived, and because he has arrived, hope has arrived. The one who has all authority is the one that's come to save. I know there are so many weights in this world that feel so heavy. Some of you may have to carry more of a burden than anyone ever should. And some of you are carrying more of a burden than anyone knows other than God himself. There is pain. There is worry. There is anxiety. And Jesus has a ton of things to say about all of that. He cares deeply for every struggle and assures us we are known by God, we are cared for by God, that even the hairs on our head are numbered. You are so much more loved than you know. And it is out of that great love that Jesus knows our number one need. Not to say we don't have other needs, but our number one need is him. Our number one need is found in His heavenly authority. Our number one need is found in hearing and responding to the gospel. It is the gospel that makes a difference in today, but also, I would say more significantly, that is what makes a difference in what our lives will look like 30,000 years from now, 30 million years from now, 30 billion years from now, on into the future, on into eternity, all into everlasting. Listen, in John 14, Jesus is encouraging his disciples. And when he says, in my Father's house there are many rooms, his Father's house is, is heaven. He tells them that he will prepare a place for them. One day he will return and he will bring his disciples to his father's house. He assures his disciples that they know the way. In John 14, 6, quote, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me, end quote. Jesus is telling his followers that he is the only way to heaven, that no one can get to heaven except through him. His purpose is to come and declare the good news that now God was making a way to be saved, that everyone's sin could be paid for, could be atoned for, could be history that no one needs to be clothed with regret or hopelessness, that now they could be wrapped up in the righteousness of God. The miracles were awesome. They helped so many people believe. But the greatest miracle is what Jesus was highlighting for them here in Luke chapter 4. It is the gospel. It is the beautiful truth that one can go from spiritual death to life, that one can be saved from hell and enjoy eternity in heaven with Jesus. I'm convinced this section is about declaring the authority of Jesus, authority over spiritual things, physical things, heavenly things, his complete and total rule over all. Listen, the one who endured the cross for you, who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, has all spiritual authority. He is Lord over the unseen. The one who endured the cross for you, who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, has all physical authority. He is Lord over the seen. 
The one who endured the cross for you, who drank the cup of God's wrath for you, has all heavenly authority. He is Lord over the kingdom, and who gets in? Again, it is as the great Christian philosopher Abraham Kuyper said, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. End quote. What a beautiful truth it is to know that Christ, who loved us to the cross, to the tomb, and back, has authority over all. As I close today, I simply want you to stop and reflect. What does it mean in your life for Christ to be Lord over every square inch? To know that over every aspect of your life, whether that is work or school or family or church or friends or neighborhood or whatever, that Christ has cried, mine, over that. Let us think, what does it mean to make Christ Lord over our all. Thanks for listening to the Steadfast Podcast. I want to remind you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul wrote this, quote, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, end quote. So in light of biblical truth, let us be steadfast, immovable. Let us remember that through Jesus, not one labor is in vain, not one trial is in vain, not one effort in all of our lives is in vain. Because he gives purpose, and that purpose rings through eternity. That's all I've got for you today. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, if you've got questions you would like answered, you can email me at matt at steadfastpodcast.com.